Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Rounding the News. My name is Liam Sturgis. This is your weekly news roundup brought to you by Rounding the Earth. Now, there is a small chance that my audio is not working. So do me a favor, ladies and gentlemen, as you always do in the comments, wherever it is you're watching, please let me know, is my audio working? In the meantime, I'm just going to quickly sift through. Do we see anybody here on Rumble? Do we see anybody over on Odyssey? Um, okay, I'm going to get started assuming my audio is working. Sometimes that is the best course of action. So let's do this. I'll be your host for today as per usual. Hey, look at that. I can be heard. Thank you, Ms. Weasel. Thank you, Gabe Gyland. Um, So, all right, before we get started, all right, I want to remind everyone you can support the show by sending us, where's my fun little window? You can support the show by sending us a Rumble rant on Rumble or a tip on Rockfin. We're still not quite fully monetized on YouTube, but uh, we're working on that. But even more importantly, we invite you to come join us over on the Rounding the Earth Locals. That is www.roundingtheearth.locals.com, where we, in fact, even have a live chat going right now where I see Jen. Thank you for joining us, Jen. Um, and... I have posted there the show notes for today's episode, along with all of the links to watch the show live on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, and Rockfin. So thank you to everyone who's joined us there. Now, we are continuing our investigation into FTX and effective altruism and how that leads to Sam Bankman-Fried and the large scandal that we are watching take place. So this is a rounding the news special investigation undertaken to bolster Matthew Crawford's viral Substack article titled A Grand Unified Theory of the FTX Disaster. If you have not read it, do not delay any longer, ladies and gentlemen. So let's jump right into it. This is Dustin Moskovitz and Mark Zuckerberg. Last week, we dove into the origins of Facebook and its apparent predecessor, LifeLog, a DARPA project to document virtually everything about everybody. We showed that everyone involved in Facebook's founding went on to invest tremendous time and money into healthcare, pharmaceuticals, and cryptocurrency projects with overt ties to the World Economic Forum and top military contractors. Today, we finally answer the question, who is Dustin Moskovitz? Perhaps one of the most obvious yet poorly described COVID-19 players. So let's see if we can figure this out. Dustin Moskovitz began studying economics at Harvard University in 2002, living with roommates Mark Zuckerberg, Chris Hughes, Andrew McCollum, and Eduardo Saverin. As explored in detail in last week's report, the five young men are said to have invented the Facebook in this period, pairing up with Sean Parker and snagging a Peter Thiel investment, then moving to California to launch the company in 2004. Moskowitz left Facebook in 2008 to launch another internet venture called Azana, 
His partner in the venture named Justin Rosenstein, there pictured on the left, was an engineering lead at Facebook and a former product manager at Google. In fact, this is interesting. Rosenstein was reportedly in charge of developing Facebook's like button, which we all know all too well, as well as pages and something called Beacon. What is Beacon? I didn't know until I looked it up. Apparently, it was the name for Facebook's online advertising system that tracked people's web activities, not just limited to their use of Facebook itself. From a November 2007 article published in PC World, headline, Facebook Beacon More Intrusive Than Previously Thought. And of course, we in 2022 will not be surprised to hear that. But I read, Beacon will report back to Facebook on members' activities on third-party sites that participate in Beacon, even if the users are logged off from Facebook and have declined having their activities broadcast to their Facebook friends, which is what the app would do. It would send a notification onto your, whatever it was called then, your wall, your profile, uh, when you would go to a partner website and buy something. Of particular concern is that users aren't informed that data on their activities at these sites is flowing back to Facebook, nor given the option to block that information from being transmitted. Indeed, the program that Rosenstein oversaw was flagged by the discerning tech public as a serious threat to user privacy, about which Facebook was publicly lying. So it went beyond just sending notifications to your page, and that's you know, sometimes intrusive, even if you decided you didn't want it to show up publicly, that data was still going to Facebook. So let me be clear. It was a data collection situation that people weren't happy with. And this is from this particular gentleman's blog at the time. Despite the fact that I was not logged in, Facebook just received enough information to tie the activity I took on their affiliate to my individual account, which combined with the social data they already have, such as circles of friends, level of education, communication par uh, patterns, and geographic locations, would allow them to profile individual consumer behavior on a nearly unprecedented level of detail. I just want to do a special shout out to Foot, who I just noticed in the house on Rumble. He says, imagine founding Facebook on the exact day that DARPA shuts down LifeLog. Yes, yes, that is part of the intrigue here. Thank you for coming, Futch, and thank you to everybody on every platform. Just quickly, quick, quickly popping through, seeing how everyone is. Good stuff. Okay, yeah. So that's that's pretty crazy. It it does start to sound eerily like the premise of DARPA's LifeLog program. So whether military money or cash from successful entrepreneurship, Moskowitz became very rich very quick. With all that cash burning a hole in his pocket, he signed Bill Gates' giving pledge in 2010, alongside his future wife, Carrie Tuna, making them the youngest pair to sign the pledge. Gates' vision made sense to them. I quote, they had little experience with philanthropy, but they believed that the bulk of the money Moskowitz had made estimated to be $8.1 billion by Forbes, should be returned to society in their lifetimes. Now, at the time, Tuna was working at the Wall Street Journal. 
she founded her her high school chapter high school's chapter of Amnesty International, studying political science at Yale University, and then working as a reporter across several different publications in her early career. Tuna and Moskovitz started dating in 2009. I quote. Tuna said it wasn't until a few dates into the relationship that it dawned on her that the guy she was seeing was likely to become very wealthy. I'm sure she had no idea. Now, of course, he very quickly became very wealthy. In 2011, Moskowitz was named the world's youngest self-made billionaire by Forbes. Tuna quit her job to allow her to focus on the couple's new ventures into philanthropy. Now, she was reportedly in charge of the couple's philanthropic game plan, while Moskowitz focused on the very busy work at Asana. Interestingly, the official story goes that she rejected the traditional method of choosing charitable causes based on, you know, personal passion, things that affect or inspire the donor personally. Instead, she argued, focusing funds on causes that are not as super sexy would be more likely to have a larger relative impact if they had thus far not received as much attention from donors, which I'll say makes sense in theory. Now, as Tuna was moving from journalism into philanthropy, she claims to have come across a book titled The Life You Can Save by none other than Peter Singer, the same radical utilitarian whose earlier essays served as the inspiration for William McCaskill's pioneering of the effective altruism movement. Well, isn't that a dink, as the kids say? According to the Washington Post, this decision marked the couple's entry into the calculating and strategic world introduced to us first by McCaskill. And I quote, they have become pioneers in an engine, in an emerging philosophy of philanthropy known as effective altruism, which applies evidence and reason over things like emotion and intuition to determine where one can do the most good. The duo are emblematic of a new generation of millennial philanthropists seeking to give far beyond their own communities and experiences. And thus, the framework was set for Dustin Moskowitz and Carrie Tuna to officially join forces with the emerging effective altruism movement and begin to influence the course of world events. And that they did. Moskowitz and Tuna launched Good Ventures in 2011. When narrowing down their priority areas, the pair seemed to agree, I kid you not, that the scariest thing facing humanity is asteroids. After asking a few questions, they decided that NASA has this covered. Other areas of interest they chose to include in their portfolio were antibiotic resistance, artificial intelligence, the arts, biosecurity, climate change, criminal justice reform, malaria, marijuana policy, microfinance, nuclear security, supervolcanoes, and U.S. policy. 
So basically everything. And I'll say they did sort of go back later on the arts premise. Uh, I don't think they necessarily said it was a waste of time, but I think it was sort of seen as not really the most pressing issue, which uh, as as someone who occupies that space, I take a little a little bit of exception to. I don't know if they'll give me money when I'm a starving artist, but all of this is nicely drawn out in the lead image from the Washington Post article. So if you take a look, that's Carrie Tuna, and this is meant to represent her journal, or I suppose it was a, a Google Doc, as they put it, early on when she was jotting down all of her ideas, and they reproduced this nice handwritten looking thing here. And interestingly, if you go to the Washington Post article now, you may or may not see the image. For me, it was blurred, but I had to go into the archive and uh, successfully pull it from there. But if you take a close look, okay, here are some of the highlights from the image. So I'll read the, the title or the subject, and then I'll also read the little notes jotted underneath in al alphabetical order. We have alcohol policy, which she wrote, Little attention. Biomedical research will investigate in 2015, building up scientific advisory capacity. Biosecurity, pandemics, and bioterrorism. Substantial government funding, but little philanthropy. Education, so crowded. Food security, general resilience to risk. Foreign aid, somewhat crowded, Super important. <laughs> Geoengineering, research, and governance. Uncrowded. <laughs> Global health and development. Look into it in 2015. Immigration and global poverty. Ambitious long shot. Seems less crowded. Income security. Really important. A bit crowded, though. Increasing organ donation. Little focus, moderate level of importance. Land use policy, e.g. optimal zoning policy. Macroeconomic stabilization, enormous potential for impact. Kinda crowded, kinda not. Risks associated with nanotechnology. Investigation in progress. Risks from geomagnetic storms. Appears uncrowded. Assessing size slash magnitude of risk. Treatment of animals in industrial agriculture. Difficult judgment calls. Not too crowded. All right, that's the end of that list. Now, some of these items will raise flags for those spending lots of time on platforms such as BitChute, where individuals and organizations have been seemingly trying to raise awareness for years on certain issues. Take geoengineering, for example. Far from a conspiracy theory. Credible voices have been pointing out off-narrative activities in the skies that suggest philanthropists like Tuna and Moskovitz were doing more than just scribbling notes. Geomagnetic storms is another interesting one, but it will come as no surprise to anyone here that the most interesting one to me here is biosecurity. It is prominently circled in the top right-hand corner. And it is elaborated on in the Washington Post article. I quote, Biosecurity, the constellation of issues around pandemics, bioterrorism, biological weapons, and biotech research that could be used to inflict great harm, according to the group's definition, may be 
among the most ripe for investment. You don't say. While natural pandemics like the flu seemed like the biggest threat right now, the team worried whether new technologies could pose a greater risk in time. The government has already invested in solutions. But everyone the team interviewed agreed that more needed to be done to, say, increase disease surveillance and strengthen public health systems in developing countries. Keep in mind, though, that this article was published in December 2015, long before the concept of bioterrorism or pandemics in general had really entered the zeitgeist of the world population, minus moments of brief relevance, I suppose, in 2003 with SARS and then 2009 with the so-called swine flu pandemic to a very minor degree. But clearly, people were thinking about it behind the scenes. Good Venture's earliest grants went to a number of uh, or a, a number of organizations that have appeared throughout our earlier sections of this investigation, including the Against Malaria Foundation, Give Directly, which is Google affiliated, Give Well, New Incentives, which is a program to give people money to take vaccines, and Population Services International, which is exactly what it sounds like. More on that in a second. But there are others of note. The Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, otherwise known as the SCI Foundation, is endorsed by Giving What We Can, which, remember, was the first effective altruism organization started by William McCaskill, as well as another organization called The Life You Can Save. Sounds familiar. And receives additional funding from GiveWell. The board of trustees for this group includes representatives formerly of GlaxoSmithKline, BP Oil, BBC Media Action, Grand Challenges Canada, which is a initiative funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Malaria No More, and Young Diplomats of Canada, which is a program kind of like the Young Global Leaders, backed by the G20, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the United Nations, among others. Okay, so that's one. Another is the Alliance for Open Society International, which is how it's listed in the grant, but that is the operating name of Open Society Institute Baltimore, which describes itself as the only U.S. field office for the Open Society Foundations, one of the primary foundations of liberal billionaire George Soros. Yes, indeed. Other donors to AOSI include the Ford Foundation, the New World Foundation, Schwab Charitable, Charitable Fund, that's Charles Schwab, not Klaus Schwab, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. All right. Then you have the Cochrane Collaboration, which is now simply called Cochrane, which is an influential charitable research organization that has helped manage the flow of information during the COVID-19 crisis. You see here early on, they published the special collection coronavirus back when it was called 2019-NCOV. Ah, the good old days. Evidence relevant to critical care. So it's an evidence collection research organization group, high standards. So when Dr. Tess Laurie went 
looking through the scientific literature to evaluate the existing research on ivermectin, she applied strict Cochrane methodology, which included using randomized controlled trials only, assessing the risk of bias of each trial, and assessing the certainty of the overall evidence using the grade approach. So that is some insight as to what Cochrane's role is. Cochrane exists to set and then sort of um, not so much enforce, but uh, it's the standard by which researchers like Dr. Laurie go in and evaluate evidence. So that's what she used at the time. Cochrane is also funded by the National Institutes of Health in the United States, the pharma-funded Population Health Research Institute in Canada, the South African Medical Research Council, the University of Oxford, and the World Health Organization. Another one, we have Evidence in Action, or sorry, just Evidence Action, which is a nonprofit organization, quite literally working to deworm the world, but for the love of God, never for COVID-19 patients. Don't even try it. But everyone else can have some dewormer. Which is also funded by the Center for Effective Altruism, Effective Altruism Australia, Effective Altruism Foundations in both Germany and the Netherlands, the End Fund, which is Bono's organization as far as I know, the Founders Pledge, Give Well, Giving What We Can, The Life You Can Save, Open Philanthropy, of course, and the World Bank group. Okay. Yeah, for shook about five minutes until Soros enters the mix. Exactly right. Well, and this is just the stuff that I kept in. Okay. So, partners in philanthropy, it seems to me that the pair, Moskowitz and Tuna, was surrounded by role models who guided their thinking. Among the people cited as various types of advisors or colleagues in the Washington Post article are Paul Brest of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Laura Arilaga Andreessen of the Laura Arilaga Andreessen Foundation, Susan Uran of Pew Charitable Trust, Matt Kohler of Benchmark. Quick side note, turns out that Matt Kohler was a bit of a uh, mentor to Mark Zuckerberg as well, but that's for another day. Topped off with a trip or two to the Brookings Institution. Ah, uh -uh, but not to be forgotten in this equation is the ever-present Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. On an archived webpage from 2013, as you can see on screen now, Good Ventures lists the Gates Foundation as a partner right over my head right here explaining they worked closely with other funders to support promising projects and learn how to give effectively. And then in an August 2012 blog post titled Co-Funding with the Gates Foundation, Tuna elaborated on the relationship between the two organizations. They first met in September 2011 with the Gates Foundation's Global Health Program team. And shortly after, agreed to contribute $1 million to an effort in Myanmar to contain and eliminate growing drug resistance to the highly effective, this is their words, maybe it's true, maybe not, the highly effective anti-malarial medication artemisinin, artemi artemisinin, artemisinin, I don't know, led by Population Services International, as recommended to Good Ventures by the Gates Foundation. Okay, now they've got another partner there. The second partner listed 
is GiveWell. Recall that GiveWell was yet another organization that kept popping up in our very first Effective Altruism article from two weeks ago. How does it connect to the genesis of Effective Altruism? Good question, Liam. Well, GiveWell's story starts a little further back in 2006 with this handsome gentleman and that other handsome gentleman. A Harvard graduate named Holden Karnovsky was working as a hedge fund analyst at a venture capital firm called Bridgewater Associates. When, as the Washington Post story goes, he became frustrated that he could not compare the impact of different charities when he tried to give away $5,000 of his own one year. No one would take it, darn it. <laughs> Karnovsky co-worker Ellie Hassenfeld shared a similar desire to enhance his ability to select the correct recipient for his generosity. And the two formed a charity club, so-called, that made use of data and metrics similar to those used at Bridgewater. This resulted in the founding of something called the Clear Fund, operating under the name GiveWell, which was founded in 2007. Now, uh, Good start. Right at the offset, uh, Karnowski ran into some trouble <laughs> after he deceptively promoted GiveWell on internet forums with an old manufacturing of consent ploy. I quote from the article, Mr. Karnowski, writing as someone named Jeremiah, posted a question to Ask Metafilter, a question and answer page that is part of Metafilter, a community blog. Mr. Karnowski, writing as himself under the name Holden Zero, but without disclosing his relationship to GiveWell, answered his own question and recommended GiveWell's website. So he went in, he said, as a fake person, oh, here's exactly what I'm looking for in a charity website. Does anyone have any suggestions? And then, so he asked the question, then he comes in and answers the question. So the board didn't like that very much. This resulted in Karnovsky being demoted uh, by GiveWell's board of directors. How embarrassing. Following the revelation of the lie, for example, here in the New York Times in 2008. Now, this is interesting. Gabe Legant, lots of science YouTube channels got funding from the Gates Foundation. And I actually ran into that uh, totally by accident in a specific case where I was watching someone that I like. And then right at the end, brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'll have to, I'll have to, uh, there's more, there's more to that. I'll bring that up another time. Thank you, Gabe. If you can make a list of is it Gabe? Is this Gabe from Operation Uplift? If it is, send me a message. I'd be curious to hear who else you uh, know about. If it's not Gabe from Operation Uplift, you should join Operation Uplift. Um, all right, back to it. So, despite this, not to be deterred, in 2013, GiveWell relocated its offices down to San Francisco to be closer to the growing enthusiasm statewide for the effective altruism movement. And uh, you start to see, as we've seen these last couple of weeks, that these groups and these people start to join forces. <sighs> There's Carrie Tuna on stage with none other than William McCaskill, originator of modern effective altruism. So look, it was reportedly Peter Singer's book. That is also where Carrie Tuna first learned of Good uh, GiveWell. She joined GiveWell's board of directors in April 2011, kicking off the process of interconnecting Good Ventures and GiveWell in key ways. 
the two began coordinating their donations, eventually functionally merging their operations. In a 2012 blog post seen here, Karnovsky wrote the following. After a year of exploration, Carrie stated that while many of the people she had spoken to had been helpful, GiveWell seemed to be most in alignment with the values of Good Ventures and had given the most helpful support in pursuing these values, and that GiveWell's research appears to her to, at, to be at least as high quality as any foundation research she's seen. Now, GiveWell and Good Ventures plan to act as a single team as we source and vet funding opportunities in areas in which our interests overlap. Now, look, while not technically a merger, the partnership quickly began locking step, as they say, on a new project called GiveWell Labs, which was renamed in August 2014 to the Open Philanthropy Project. Yes, folks, we've made it. Now, the Open Philanthropy Project later was shortened. It became Open Philanthropy, and then they went through a logo change uh, fairly recently. Um, at, it was at this point, though, when they introduced this Open Philanthropy Project partnership that Good Ventures phased out its own staff entirely, eventually operating solely for the purpose of, of holding money for Open Philanthropy and then funding causes at the direction of open philanthropy, supported by GiveWell's research and recommendations. And this is what you'll find on their website right now. This is on uh, on uh, Good Ventures' website. Um, Ellie Jr. RN, $1 million. I'm happy that you got that reference. That is a movie you'll never believe it. I have not seen. Okay, so um, back at it again. Currently, Good Ventures does not employ full-time staff. Instead, we rely only, or sorry, we rely on the research and recommendations of two organizations with which we partner closely, Open Philanthropy and GiveWell. Open Philanthropy advises major donors on how to maximize the impact of their giving. Its mission is to help others as much as possible with its available resources. Uh, GiveWell finds outstanding giving opportunities and publishes the full details of its analysis to help donors decide where to give. It recommends a small number of top charities that deliver evidence-backed, cost-effective, and scalable programs. Oh boy, did this wind up being consequential. Because, following its shift to open philanthropy, Good Ventures donations escalated in scale and scope. Starting in August 2014, when Open Philanthropy kicked in, Open Philanthropy started funding more ambitious projects, starting with a $103,000 grant to RAND Corporation to conduct a study about the consequences of legalizing marijuana in Vermont on behalf of the state of Vermont. So just to be clear, well, we'll get to it, but right off the bat, RAND Corporation is a significant military contractor, a, a, one of the most powerful think tanks on the planet. They may very well be not-for-profit, but dear goodness have we entered what I can only describe as deep state territory. And it happened immediately once Open Philanthropy launched. Okay, also note that it was commissioned by the state of Vermont. Okay, from then on, 
kicked off by this open philanthropy went on a spending spree that covered every major area of actionable policy with a particular focus on food crime social justice elections healthcare, drug development vaccines animals nuclear weapons geoengineering digital id and indeed biological warfare a short list of key recipient recipients uh, of key recipients from 2014 and on include this long list. Uh, there's there's so many names, and these are just the ones that I thought were relevant. I guess I'll just run through some real quick. 80,000 Hours, African Union Development Agency, Against COVID-19, Alliance for International Medical Action, uh, uh, Action, American Civil Liberties Association, the ACLU, American Society for Microbiology, Applied Research Laboratory for Intelligence and Security, Berkeley Essential Risk Institute, or Existential Risk, not Essential Risk, Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, and then a whole bunch of other hospitals and schools and think tanks and Effective Altruism Debate Championship, Climate Works Foundation, Effective Altruism Foundation, the End Fund, again, Engineers Without Borders, Federation of American Scientists, by golly, Forum... Uh, for Climate Engineering Assessment, Founders Pledge Future of Humanity Institute, GenSpace. There's so much here. Oh, boy. International Vaccine Institute, MIT Media Lab, PATH, Nuclear Threat Initiative. Okay. Now, if you read that list, which I hope you do, and believe me, this is just a fraction. There are many, many more. Notice that as I, as I alluded to, many of these are explicitly not altruistic organizations, nor are they often even nonprofits. Present are government institutions, many research institutes, uh, universities, think tanks, and straight up commercial ventures. Just businesses. Okay. Canadians may be surprised to see, well, that open philanthropy's reach extended up into the universities of Toronto, British Columbia, and Montreal, as well as things like Toronto's University Health Network. Okay, now, sifting through open philanthropy's database of 1,322 grants, a few particularly alarming ones stand out, and I'm going to go through them now for you briefly. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, work on India and China. This $100,000 grant from March 2015 funded the organization's initial efforts to begin learning about policy infrastructure in both India and China, so as to support policy work in other countries. It's taken the lobbying business and, and, and exporting it, I suppose. We've got a couple comments I just want to go through, of course. <laughs> L Ella Jr. RN Gas William, you must see the Shagadelic movies, baby. They're so terrible in such a great way. I completely believe you. And then followed up with Sherlock Biosciences. Dude, you know, Sherlock Biosciences, maybe you can put in the comments a little bit of backstory there because I've heard of them before and I don't fully know what is going on, apart from the fact that indeed they are WEF connected. Oh, you mean the WEF is on the list. How could I forget? Yes, they are. Um, Gryphon Scientific is the group that suggested lifting gain-of-function restrictions. Get out of here. Could you put a link in the chat? That would be 
incredible, as my buddy Foot used to say, put the link in the chat, put the link in the chat. And that is an inside joke that only he will understand. Okay. Well, this is crazy. Um, back at it. <laughs> Foundation for the National Institutes of Health. Working group on malaria gene drive testing path. This $1.2 million grant from July 2016 was just one in a series of grants funding the U.S. government's research into reducing the mosquito population through genetic editing using a technology called gene drives. As described when I went to learn more in Nature, Gene drives are used to bypass natural selection and plug in a gene that would mushroom through the population faster than a mutation handed down by the usual process of inheritance. Eventually, the entire population can be eliminated. The research surrounding gene drives seems to be focused on, let's see, uh, on, on, on getting rid of mosquitoes to also maybe get rid of malaria. I thought I had a thing there for that, but I guess not. Um, but here's the problem. What is to stop this power, this technology, from being used in other species? If it can be used to eliminate entire species of mosquitoes, what would stop it from being used in, I don't know, house cats? Or how about humans? Eugenic purposes. Besides, I can't help but find its mechanism of action nearly identical to that of the mRNA and adenoviral vector genetic vaccine products deployed in 2020 through to 2022 today. I quote again, the technique relies on gene editing, on the gene editing tool CRISPR and some bits of RNA to alter or silence a specific gene or insert a new one. In the next generation, the whole drive copies itself onto its partner chromosome so that the genome no longer has the natural version of the chosen gene and instead has two copies of the gene drive. Adding to the list of reasons to find this concerning is the fact that the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have been key actors supporting the development of this new technology. Moving forward, the CDC Foundation, Malaria Control Research. Here is a slightly earlier grant for the same purpose, issued in September 2016 to the CDC Foundation. This $1.2 million grant focuses on RNA interference, shortened to RNAi, a specialty of several companies directly tied to the lipid nanoparticle technology used in the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna COVID-19 genetic vaccines, particularly a company called Alnalam Pharmaceuticals. Okay, Future of Humanity Institute. Biosecurity and Pandemic Preparedness. This $115,000 grant from September 2016 went to support Pierce Millette's work on biosecurity at the Future of Humanity Institute. Recall that the FHI was one of the very first funders of the Center for Effective Altruism and operates out of the same facility to this day. And of course, who funds the Future of Humanity Institute? Well, among others, Elon Musk. Millet's biography, 
boasts that he, quote, focuses. Oh, there's the reminder, sorry, of the funding for um, the Center for Effective Altruism or sorry, the uh, Future Humanity Institute funding the Center for Effective Altruism. But his bio here boasts that he focuses on pandemic and deliberate disease and the implications of biotechnology. Here's a question. What is deliberate disease? Put your thoughts in the chat. Furthermore, Millet went on to be appointed by the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Uh, by the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Oh, it's all the same slide. As founding executive director of the International Biosecurity and Biosafety Initiative for Science, or IBBIS, an organization that will work collaboratively with global partners to strengthen biosecurity norms and develop innovative tools to uphold them. Let me repeat that last bit. To strengthen biosecurity norms and develop innovative tools to uphold them. Okay. Now, further to the Future of Humanity Institute above, new office for effective altruism organizations. Open Philanthropy directed $776,000 to the University of Oxford in February 2020, good timing, to support a new office for four effective altruism organizations, including the Center for Effective Altruism, the Forethought Foundation, the Future of Humanity Institute, and the Global Priorities Institute. How generous of them. Next up, the Nuclear Threat Initiative themselves. Biosecurity Program Support. $8 million to support NTI's work to reduce global catastrophic biological risks, enhance biosecurity, and advance pandemic preparedness. This followed a similar grant for $1.9 million, $1 million from November 2018. Then we have MIT Media Lab, everybody's favorite Jeffrey Epstein hangout. Kevin Esvelt's research being supported here. $1 million in March 2019 to conduct research on global catastrophic risks, global health, and animal welfare. And the last main one I'm going to point out here, okay? The Center for Election Science. This $600,000 grant was issued in December 2017 to the Center for Election Science, a U.S.-based nonprofit organization working to cultivate grassroots supporters to build support for alternate voting system ballot initiatives at the city level. And you will never guess who is listed as the external investigator for the grant. William McCaskill. He returned to advocate for the group again in 2018 the year of the midterm elections in the United States, four years ago. I can't believe it. This is one of those things where you have these connections that can't possibly make sense unless it's intentional. Uh, I, I can't like this is this is election security now that this same guy, investment opportunities, Gardner Art, Gardner Art, very good point. And that's, I think, in response to Futch's question, what would make someone's main two interests be one, pandemics, two, biosecurity? That's like being interested in murder and funeral direction. I think you just summed up the federal government, Futch. Good job. Okay. 
But look, we're running over time here. This was always going to be a long one. And guess what? I had to cut stuff for time. And for the sake of time, I will provide this last selection of grants for you to take a look at yourself. You will not be disappointed. I'm going to read them out. Arizona State University, canine cancer vaccine trial. CHS, biosecurity, global health security, and global catastrophic risks. Genspace, DIY bio and FBI meeting. Okay. Good Judgment, Inc., COVID-19 forecasting. And lastly, the University of Washington, flu vaccine and protein design. I think we all know where that's going to lead us. So, okay. Look, it is unclear to me at what point exactly Dustin Moskovitz and Carrie Tuna officially decided to adopt the label of effective altruists. But all roads seem to point to Peter Singer. Pick up a Peter Singer essay from the 1970s, you're an effective altruist. Stumble on Peter Singer's new book on whose life is more worthwhile to save than the other, you're an effective altruist. Regardless of the specific moment it took place, the Open Philanthropy Project certainly made it official. As elaborated on on this beautifully folded dollar bill in this article from Vox from 2018 titled, You Have $8 Billion. You want to do as much good as possible. What do you do? And I read from it. The team at Open Phil are effective altruists, members of a growing community that commits itself to using empirical methods to work out how to do the most good it possibly can. The article names Peter Singer, William McCaskill, and his ventures 80,000 hours in giving what we can. Good Ventures, Giving Well, Open Society Project, et al. And ties them together into one big effective altruism bow. It is undeniable that these are all members of a club that they're proud to talk about. These people made a lot of money working in big tech, venture capitalism, even academia, and are ready to use their money to change the world in their image. That's exactly what they're telling us they're doing. We should believe them because it appears to be exactly what they have done. But maybe we're missing a piece here. It's quite clear that Peter Singer, to my left, to your right, is the source of inspiration for much, if not all, of the formal effective altruism movement. He's quite literally cited as such by William McCaskill and Carrie Tuna, among others. We're nearing the end of this phase of the investigation, but before we sprint towards the FTX finish line and finally figure out how do all these groups, all this work we've done, what, how, do they, how do they actually connect with FTX? I'd get there into the same stuff, but how is this related? Really, in the end, how can we say all of these people are in the same club? Well, so before we answer that, we got one more thing to do. Let's finally dive into Peter Singer and his ventures and his sheep, I guess. 
next week on Rounding the News. Oof. To be continued, guys. Look, if you've enjoyed the show and have been watching live, before you look at that handsome face, please drop us a Rumble rant if you're on Rumble, a tip on Rockfin, or heck, if you're watching on Odyssey, throw us some library tokens. We may even be back up and running for payment on YouTube soon. Ready to accept your super chats there as well. But most importantly, okay, before you leave, if I can find the silly little slide, where is it? Let's see. Well, that's that's the Rounding the Earth Substack. So that's a good place to go. www.roundingtheearth.substack.com But also, go to www.roundingtheearth.locals.com There we are hosting weekly insider discussions, so to speak, about topics that we're not yet ready to go public with, but bear discussing nonetheless. If you have not read Matthew's viral article on FTX and the Grand Unified Theory and the associated disaster, it's time you do so, as I consider this Rounding the News special investigation to be supplementary to that piece. Now, you can even on Locals, snag yourself a free month of premium support if you use the promo code that is included in the pinned comment when you go to roundingtheearth.locals.com. After which, you can choose to continue to support for as little as $5 a month, or you can stay around in the community for free. The main point is we want people to join the community and to participate. The only thing behind the paywalls right now are those discussions that happen um, after they happen live for everybody and it's after that after we finish them and we re-upload them they go for supporters only so if that's worthwhile to you you can't always be there for the live stream www.runningtheearth.locals.com become a paid member now back to the very handsome pick we're going to go to www.liamsturges.com if you want to learn more about what i do in the real world i make music and um Beyond that, I I have 11 minutes to get to a Christmas party. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm just going to make sure I haven't missed anything on Rumble. Gain of Function is just theater, but nonetheless, they've laundered their game theory into the system. I completely agree, Wild Miston. Lots of millions in the theater. Uh, those folded dollar bills sure look like reptile eyes, Futch. You're, you're making the good points, sir. He's one who justifies the killing of a baby after he's born garden, Gardner Art, referring to um, Peter, I've already forgotten his last name, Peter Singer. Yes, that's what I heard Whitney Webb say. RTE Locals is everything. Absolutely. Uh, Miss Weasel, everybody should go to our aroundingtheearth.locals.com. Uh, Gardner Art, thank you. Taz, Merry Christmas. Ladies and gentlemen, don't you worry, we're going to have a nice Christmas sign off when it comes time. But for now, enjoy the beginning of your Christmas or your Hanukkah or whatever else you support. Just be happy. That's the most important thing. We'll see you guys next week. Mm -hmm.